Just a few weeks ago, Dr. Anthony Fauci stated that the United States is exiting the full-blown pandemic phase of COVID-19. While this is welcome news, many questions remain about how countries can better handle future pandemics and other global public health crises. COVID-19 demonstrated that even pandemics aren't always enough to bring nations together with a sense of common cause. For example, COVID-19 became a wedge issue in the relationship between the United States and China and continues to generate friction even now as we enter the third year of the pandemic in the United States. What does the future hold for COVID-19 collaboration and global public health collaboration more generally? My name is David Firestein, and welcome to the Bush China Foundation podcast. Joining me today to explore these questions is Jennifer Huang Bui, Tang Chair for China Policy Studies and a Senior Policy Researcher at the RAND Corporation. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. I'm really glad to be here. In addition to her positions at RAND, Dr. Bowie also serves as the chair of the International Health Department at Georgetown University and is a member of the Board of Advisors of the Bush China Foundation. She leads wide-ranging collaborative research initiatives on global health security and related topics. Currently, she is working on projects to assess health diplomacy in the post-COVID-19 era and gender equity and health in Asia, among others. She is also actively involved in U.S.-China Track 2 diplomacy in these and other areas. Jennifer, let me start by asking you about your research projects as they relate to China. What are your main projects today? And given the difficulties in the overall bilateral relationship, have you felt any impact over the last few years in terms of your ability to conduct collaborative research with Chinese partners? Yes, David, I think that's a great question. So a little bit more of my background, I was first trained uh, as a physician uh, in China, in Beijing Medical University. And that was back in the uh, the mid 90s, when uh, at that time, I really uh, looking forward to uh, graduate school uh, experience outside China. So I came to U.S., uh, on a emerging leader scholarship, which is a new uh, U.S.-China collaboration on research. Um, and then from the 2000 to 2000, I would say, 14, I've done quite a few uh, NIH-sponsored projects in China. So that's where I really work with the uh, central CDC as well as, as uh, the provincial CDC in China and HIV uh, prevention. Um, many provinces many big names uh, in China that are leading the HIV work that many of them actually was trained in the U.S. In the last few years, uh, I focus more on the global health governance as well as uh, the health system security and health system strengthening. So what I see is that there has been a tremendous uh, collaborations between U.S. and China on infectious diseases since uh, 2003 after the SARS. The current uh, China CDC model is following the, the U.S. CDC's structure as well as its interest in epidemiologic investment and technology. So there have been many successful cases of the two countries' collaboration. 
NIH, FDA, uh, CDC, many foundations in the U.S. has been supporting China on that, and China has made a huge stride in the progress on public health. However, I think that has changed since, uh, I would say, maybe around 2013 to 16. There's a very subtle separation in terms of the research on health, but uh, at that time, it was very subtle. But it was it become less subtle, uh, especially in China, when we see since 2016, there were lots of offices uh, that from C- U.S. CDC, from the National Science Foundation, from multiple programs that really just closed or pulled out out of China. And then, of course, with 2019, with the uh, start of COVID-19, we see a, a very dramatic difference of the turning against the collaboration is more of taking that uh, type of fighting between the two countries relates to COVID-19. So uh, I think in a nutshell, is there was a great collaboration for many, many years. And then there was a cool down. And then in the last few years, uh, in terms of global health, it has been pretty come down to a standstill. Let me drill down a little bit on the specific topic of COVID-19. The United States and China have certainly approached the pandemic in seemingly very different ways and evidently with very different results. How would you assess the two nations' approaches to COVID-19? And are there things that each country can learn from the other's experience notwithstanding the major differences in the two countries' overall political and social systems? I think that's a good question. I was actually interviewed by a Chinese newspaper a couple of weeks ago with a question, I think, maybe a little bit more specific to it's ask me to score each each country on their COVID-19 response. As I said, you know, it was it's actually very difficult to really score because I think all governments facing this unprecedented pandemic wants to do a good job because, you know, it's, as we have seen, it, it impact people's life as well as economy, as well as even security of the country. So every country is trying to do its best. However, we also seen that this time the public health really intertwined with both economic financial status, as well as the partnership between the government and private enterprise. And also reflects the civil society and their trust among these different societies, as well as between the civil society and the governance. So I feel that each country, both China and U.S., are pretty strong economically. Uh, so finance side is less of a concern for both of them. However, I think China has advantage of had the 2003 SARS epidemic, and they were successful at that time to control that. So that was an advantage for China to have a model that is successful with the coronavirus before, whereas in the U.S., this is really one of the first time that we've seen in our lifetime uh, to see this uh, type of pandemic. It also reflects a different philosophy, of course. Uh, U.S. is very strong in biomedical technology, in pushing the, the new technology in vaccine and treatment, very good in the distribution and approval of that. 
whereas China is probably better in terms of implementing the public health measurements. So I would say, you know, each country is using what they can uh, to control that. But for the long run, I think each has its issues. On a related note, let me ask a kind of profound question that I that I think would be difficult to answer, but I'll ask it anyway. And that is, is it possible to assess the cost of the failure of the United States and China to coordinate and collaborate on COVID-19 to a greater degree than what we saw over the last two years? In other words, the two countries were kind of at loggerheads and the U.S. was not in a place of um, kind of welcoming cooperation with China uh, and on the contrary, blamed China for COVID-19, et cetera. And to what degree did that cost each country and the world in terms of uh, effectiveness in combating this pandemic? Right. So what we have seen has a lot of problems, right, in the last two years of the two countries why they cannot work together on certain things. But uh, I think, uh, you know, to, for a public health professional, one thing that's awakening is that public health is also part of the politics, right? So uh, we know that the two countries is in competition on multiple fronts, competition in technology, competition on influence. So all of that competition uh, spill over and amplified, I would say, during the COVID-19 when there's a crisis. Uh, so that's really disrupt the collaborations we had before and also harmed the trust between uh, the two countries and also stopped any meaningful dialogues among the uh, scientists and uh, public health officials. I know there are still dialogues among the individuals and physicians, but we lost a lot of uh, platforms during this time. So it's hard to measure, say, what if, right? So what if it's like when U.S.-China working together, H7 and 9, uh, where, you know, very few U.S. citizens heard of H7 and 9, which was a very severe novel avian flu virus that also emerged in China. But China at the time, with the U.S. CDC's influenza team's uh, support, they have determined detected that virus through their new surveillance system, and they monitored that and then even built a vaccine for that disease. So I think that's the ideal uh, scenario, right? So two country teams working together and uh, facing a novel new virus and be able to control that, that that didn't spill over to other regions. So to the sense that not many people know about that H7 and 9. But you know that's certainly not the case for COVID nineteen. So what we have lost there, I think there, I hope there will be modeling uh, in the next few years when we over this crisis and can. As I'm sure they will be able to estimate the cost of the lacking of that type of collaboration. Jennifer, do you have any specific suggestions for how to improve the efficacy of what might be termed global public health diplomacy? In your research and work, what instances of, let's say, multilateral collaboration, apart from just U.S.-China collaboration, can we look at as kind of models for what we as a global community ought to be aspiring to when we face as we no doubt will, future pandemics and other global public health challenges. 
Yeah, so I have been, you know, in this uh, teaching as well as research in global health for a while. Uh, so global health activities are, you know, they're different types. They are the emergencies like a new infectious diseases. There are also more mundane uh, tasks like building a uh, health system in a remote region or, you know, uh, distributing the nutrition for pregnant mothers and giving immunization to uh, kids kids who are, you know, not have access to, to clinics. So all of these are uh, part of the global health uh, challenges and agenda. So you, you do see, you know, WHO uh, do a lot of work providing technical support and coordination, but you also see each government, uh, many governments uh, do their own own global health programs. Some of these are development assistance programs. Some of these are just collaborations and foundations do that too. So a recent project we did sponsored by Korea Foundation for Korean government is to look at, you know, how a global health successful program, for example, the COVID-19 early response in Korea was really wonderful. And uh, they did a great job in uh, putting down the first epidemic uh, uh, there, but that's a successful program. But how to turn that into something that other country can learn, and also that can build South Korea's uh, reputation and showcase its capacity and have better influence in the region and in, on the global stage. And we found interestingly that to be able to package a a success uh, in public health into a soft power, you really have to look into very details. You know how these tech technology used there can be addressing certain dimensions of global health soft power, such as, you know, digital soft power or uh, enterprise power, and maybe government or their engagement or reflecting its education and reflecting its culture. So there are a way to think through, you know, what are the good elements, what are the soft power assets of the global health program. On the other hand, there are also risks associated with global house programs. So the same success in Korea may not be successful in another country, maybe because the other country are more worried about the privacy of the data shared, you know, by the government, or maybe they are thinking, okay, this is might be a coercion uh, of commercial or political reasons, uh, or maybe, you know, this is something that's not sustainable. So I think any global health program can be a uh, soft power asset, but it can also bring in some risks. So I think, you know, from very nerdy or research perspective, uh, we, we do want to find out, you know, what is a good practice to build more soft power as well as more successful global health programs. Let me switch gears with you a little bit and talk about another area where I know you have very deep expertise, and that's the area of uh, gender and racial equity in healthcare. Can you, based on your research and your work in this area, give us an overview of some of the disparities uh, that you see that still exist in healthcare across Asia? And are there some countries that are managing the gaps there more effectively than others? And in particular, if you have any data uh, relating to how China is dealing with this issue, that would certainly be of great interest. Yeah. So, you know, talk about gender equity. I have to mention the 
the Beijing Declaration uh, that made 25 years ago when Hillary Clinton was in Beijing and working with the UN to set up this declaration. Uh, basically, is focusing on gender equity is a force to uh, build welfare for humankind. But 25 years later, we still see a lot of gap uh, in gender equity and specifically affecting the health uh, of the population. So recently, we started a uh, gender equity in Asia project rent, and we looked at Pakistan as well as South Korea, and we hope to also start a project in China too. It's interesting to see, you know, there are uh, countries with different developments stage. But when we look at uh, Pakistan, the, the key area for health on gender equity is really the access, women's access to nutrition, to prenatal care, and to the maternal and child health related services. So in that area, we, we focus more, you know, how to build the community uh, capacity to deliver service, to deliver resources to remote areas. Whereas in South Korea, the most challenging part of the gender equity seems to lie in at least manifested as the very low, look, we call the lowest low fertility rate, right? So recently we see that even this year, their fertility rate uh, coming down to 0.8 child per, per woman, which is the lowest among all the OECD countries. And also there's in terms of mental health and the satisfaction, the well-being among women are also very low. And then you look at the pain gap is the largest in South Korea between uh, men and women who are in the workforce. So then you thinking about the society norm and the family norm uh, and how that enhance the traditional gender role uh, for women and creating these barriers for them to be able to have both a, a satisfying career as well as a good family life with children. So uh, as you can see, you know, two different countries, very different issues, but all relates to gender equity. And we would like to start a project in China, uh, and especially you know, looking at China's tremendous progress in the past 40 years, I would say, in terms of health and education for women uh, and women's participation in the labor market, and see how its poverty relief programs helps women in the rural area. And then, of course, the recent we see they are also facing this fertility decrease issues and what would be the uh, policies that can help China to uh, slow down the decline of fertility. So there will be a lot to do, and uh, it will be a really interesting project. Jennifer, drilling down a little bit on one specific kind of subtopic here, mental health has garnered increased attention during this pandemic. What are some of the specific disparities that exist around mental health care and what can be done to better address those? Yeah, we, we see, you know, the health equity has been really highlighted by the COVID-19 crisis. This is when the healthcare system, the whole healthcare system has been strained by uh, this fight with the pandemic when hospital is everyone's pulled into the COVID-19 care, then many other uh, healthcare would be become uh, scarce. So, 
the access to healthcare become a more of an issue in many countries, especially when its healthcare system was overwhelmed. But you know, very early on in 2020, we were working with a hospital in Shanghai that was among the first wave of the outbreak when China was sending the healthcare providers, nurses, all to the Wuhan uh, to provide healthcare. And then we did a study to. Uh, look at what are the mental health stress associated with this,、uh, you know, round-the-clock care for COVID-19 was something that's very challenging at that time. Not sure what's going on, and you know, as their families and relatives are getting sick, they are getting sick. So, looking at how the COVID-19 add to the stress of the healthcare workers, so that was one of the first research we did. And then, of course, over the last two. Two years, we did look at some of the more vulnerable groups, like the people who need long-term care, right? Like HIV patients, they need to continue the antiviral treatment, and we looked at the, the people with handicap、uh, during lockdown. How can they get what they need? And also looking at children and elders. So what we have seen is mental health is. One of the the key service that every vulnerable group has asking for. We did a project with UNAIDS looking at how communities support function during a COVID nineteen lockdown, and found you know a tremendous burden of this mental health prevention or you know the dealing with mental health fall onto the community organizations.、Uh, so that's one of our suggestion is to think about as a whole society we have to strengthen the capacity on mental. Mental health screening and mental health 101, or emergency care,、uh, so that you know the schools, the hospitals, the community centers can provide、uh, some basic mental health services to people in need. Jennifer, I have two other questions that I want to ask before we wrap up on slightly different topics. One is recently the United States Justice Department dissolved its China initiative. Which had been heavily criticized for focusing disproportionately and often without a strong evidentiary basis on Asian American and, in particularly, ethnically Chinese academics and researchers. Based on what you have seen in your efforts and your research, what effect did this China initiative have on the academic and research communities? We at Rand started a research on the anti-Asian American hate projects. The the way we did it is that we know there's a huge increase of hate incidents and、uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans. So we went to、uh, visit to interview the community organizations that deliver services to Asian Americans, and asking them, you know, how this. Uh, COVID nineteen plus the anti Asian sentiment has impact on their communities, and we、uh, interviewed and surveyed both national organizations. 
services as well as local, like Chinatown service center, uh, different types of organizations, and f- find overwhelmingly that there's a huge impact of these um, series of these events on, on Chinese as well as other Asian American citizens in this country. Uh, and during that time, I talked to several uh, national organizations and found they are all supporting this fight to the China Initiative. So I heard of lots of uncertainties and fear uh, among the uh, scientists or in, you know, personally, I, I do know people who had to give up their, you know, 20 years career, scientific uh, career in the U.S. and go back to China or just quit um, the scientific work. So the, the damage is tremendous. But I would also say that this both anti-Asian American hate and China initiative really build this awareness as well as collaborations among different Asian American organizations that they realize, you know, they have to work together and they have to find a channel through legal or through uh, advocacy to have a voice. So I see that as the silver lining of all the trauma we have witnessed in the last two years is that we do see people are more active in voicing their concerns and organizations are more active in networking and uh, their practice of engaging with the policymakers, engaging with legal system to fight uh, the discrimination in the ways that we, we see many other racial ethnicity group has been taking. So this is, I, I think, in a way, eventually it strengthens the Asian American communities in this country. Indeed, that, that is a silver lining of an otherwise really painful chapter uh, in our modern American history. Jennifer, we typically end uh, each podcast with a kind of broader question about the general state of the U.S.-China relationship, and you certainly have uh, a terrific perspective on it based on all the work that you do. What is your sense uh, for where this relationship is going? And in your view, what can those of us outside the government's do to help advance this vitally important bilateral relationship? So I, I do think that U.S.-China relationship is entering, is already in a new stage. Uh, I don't think we can say to reset it to, you know, 20 years ago. But I also feel that we do need to look forward. Uh, so there will be great power competition. There will be competition on multiple fronts. But I, I think that's... Uh, uh, as long as we understand that fact and adjusting the uh, the positions, the way to interact, that still you know can be uh, constructive. But I, I do think you know peace is should be a a long term goal. Peaceful or collaborative competition, I think, is much better than disasters that it could lead to. Uh, so I do think you know dialogue will be very, very important. So I, I really applaud Bush China Foundation. I know you have done quite a lot of efforts in building these dialogues. I also feel that these dialogues should 
be very deep. Uh, deep meaning that they have a mission. They're, they have a specific mission, say, you know, on climate change or, or even a very specific program on cl- climate change so that they can have a long-term sustainable and deep collaborations. Uh, and that's the type of collaborations we're looking for. And speak of that, I do think climate change and global health are two great topics to start, but they are also different. I think climate change was, uh, there was a few uh, good programs led by the two governments, but, but there are not a lot. So that really needs uh, some new innovative uh, thinking of building a platform to have collaboration. Whereas I think, you know, global health, we had a great, you know, 15 to 20 years of collaboration. It's really about uh, the, now the barrier is about trust, it's about data sharing and it's about whether uh, we can uh, work together again. So that's a little bit easier, I feel, but both have challenges. So bottom line is I do think dialogue is very important and uh, we should all work on that. Jennifer, I think that's really well said and it's a great note to wrap up our discussion. And I want to thank you uh, so much for your time today and for sharing your very deep insights. Thank you, David. Very glad that we had this conversation. Remember to look for the Bush China Foundation podcast on our website, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, where you can follow our conversations. As always, thank you all so much for listening.